Holy Spirit, come close that we might be discomforted and then comforted. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Some people in this congregation today may deal very seriously with spectrophobia. Spectrophobia. It is defined as an outright fear of mirrors. Not so much the glass and the powdered aluminum that makes a reflection, but what is reflected. I think my grandmother probably had spectrophobia because on her 50th birthday, she ordered my father uh, to remove all the mirrors from the house. Um, She was a beauty queen in her early years and believed, at least in her own opinion, that her beauty had faded and she didn't want to be reminded of that every day. So she had all the mirrors removed. But spectrophobia is more than just relating only to physicality. In literature, mirrors are believed to communicate more than just a physical reflection. Sometimes a metaphysical reflection comes through, a spiritual reflection, a reflection of conscience. Uh, This is, of course, made known in the Disney film Snow White, where the mirror mirror on the wall uh, offers more to the Wicked Queen than just her reflection. It's illustrated also in Forgive Me and Indulge Me, if you will, in The Never-Ending Story, a cinematic delight of my past. In the book and in the film, Atreyu is the main character who is tasked with saving the mythical land of Fantasia. And in order to do so, he must pass several tests of valor. There is a guide at one point who warns him about a particularly trepidatious journey that involves a terrible test called the magic mirror gate. And he says to Atreyu, there you must face your true self. And Atreyu says, with some measure of confidence, that is not too difficult a task for me. And the guide responds, that's what everyone thinks. But when they stare at the glass, kind people realize that they are cruel Brave men discover that they are really cowards. Confronted with their true selves, most men run away screaming. In the second chapter of Amos, the prophet grips the wrists of both Israel and Judah and takes them through a hall of mirrors. You may know based on our sermon last Sunday, and if you weren't here, this is it in summary, Amos begins his letter with not so much building, but with a blast. He has eight oracles of judgment. The first six are offered to the nations that surround Israel and Judah, uh, the pagan neighbors that are frequently persecuting Israel and Judah. And then he pulls a fast one on his readers. The last two oracles are aimed directly at Amos' own countrymen. The seventh oracle is against Judah, and it's fairly brief and somewhat nondescript, given the the final oracle. And that final oracle, the eighth one, is against Israel. It's a bit longer, actually much longer. Why? Because Amos' turf is uh, Tekoa. That's where he grew up. He's a shepherd in Tekoa, which is in Israel, the northern portion of, uh, of the Hebrew people. And so he has a vested interest in what occurs there and maybe more knowledge of what's occurring there and so speaks directly uh, to them in in a more prolific manner. I'm going to focus tonight only on the last oracle, verses 6 through 12, in which the prophet Amos 
puts before the Israelites three mirrors. He has three charges that he's leveling against these people. The first mirror reflects societal injustice. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Now notice the oracles for Israel begin the same way that the oracles against the other nations. They have the same shape, an introduction, a crime, and then a punishment. The introduction is the same for three sins or for four. In other words, the standard that I'm applying to all of your neighbors, the people that you hate, I'm applying the same standard to you. You are not exempt from justice. And his particular anger, God's particular anger, is kindled because of how they are treating those who are in a weakened state. They are treating them as having less dignity than other human beings. And more than that, less dignity than animals. They're treating them like they are inanimate objects that don't have a soul and don't have feeling. We know that because he uses two examples here, that they are traded, they are used as currency, which may uh, be a hint that the slave trade is in mind here. They're being sold in order that people who are wealthy might gain household items like silver, play money, that's weekend money, it's not gold, it's just, you know, it's, it's $30 to go out to eat. Or they are being sold for shoes so that people can be more comfortable in their homes and outdoors. They're also, it says in this passage, treated less than soil. They're treated like dirt that is being trampled upon. And so we have a society which is disregarding the soulish quality of their neighbors. And this treatment goes directly against both Jewish theology and Jewish history. In Jewish theology, you have this unique idea that everyone from the homeless woman on the street to the king living in the palace, is made in the image and likeness of God. And they're ignoring that. They're also ignoring their own history. The the Jews were not a mighty people. This isn't China, and it's not Egypt. And the Jews spent 430 years in captivity in Egypt where they were slaves. They were regarded and treated as nothing. And God tells them in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if you're, when you get out of here, you remember that there are people in the world who now will not be as, uh, as happy and fulfilled as you. So remember the poor. Remember the outcast. Remember the foreigner, because you were once slaves. God's brand of concern reaches beyond the upper echelons of society. Ancient paganism cared about politicians and priests. Ancient deities were not interested in the poor. And here we see God saddling up to the poor. Moreover, God's concern exceeds our own inner spiritual quadrants. God is concerned with more than just your own inner angst, your troubled mind, and your need to be forgiven. All of those things are critically important. But he also cares about your physical being and your own wellness. God is drawn to those who can afford to only eat buttered pasta night after night, for those who have no savings account, and who are sold bad cars by dishonest dealers. This understanding 
of God's antipathy toward injustice ought to challenge any hasty assumptions that we make about the poor. Well, these are just people who have made bad choices, as opposed to me, for I have made better choices with my money. Uh, These are people who are just lazy. These are people who are mere dependents, milking the system. If we begin in our assumptions about people from that place, we will function as the Israelites who are being convicted by this reflection. We will become unjust and start dehumanizing people before we even know them. So that's the first mirror, injustice. The second mirror reflects what could be called perversion, perversion of both religion and romantic love. After mentioning an incestuous act, Amos writes in verse 8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. A scripture in the ancient, uh, especially in the ancient Near Eastern context, provides for us a distinctive view of human sexuality. To put it one way, our perspective as Christians does not view romantic love as forbidden nor does it see it as weakness. It actually sees it as part of God's uh, good gift uh, to his world. This is why you can have sultry love poetry, like Song of Solomon. At the same time, it also doesn't elevate it to to the place of deity, which is what tended to happen in the ancient Near East. And in this passage, we see an unnerving syncretism of both deity and sensuality. Lie beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Lying beside every altar means that the act is happening within a a setting of worship, and the garments taken in pledge is probably a reference to the vestments of priests who have been pledged to a particular deity. And so what we see is a syncretism between um, worship and sensuality. And that, of course, is enhanced by, as we read here, drinking wine. These are descriptors fit for what is commonly called a fertility cult. It was believed in the ancient world that if you worshipped Asherah and Baal, and many Israelites did, that God would bless the nation uh, with crops and children. And so the the good act of uh, relations was elevated to the place of a deity. Uh, God creates good gifts. We tend to elevate those good gifts to the position of giver, and that's where things get really dodgy and difficult. And Israel also was charged to maintain a distinctive character as a community with one God who gave good gifts to his people, and those gifts were to be enjoyed for what they were, but not lifted to the, ele- to the elevation of divinity. But Israel was lured time and time again into the status quo of other religions. And so we have a perversion of religion and romantic love. Now, this sensualized religion is not some Bronze Age phenomenon that we have as moderns moved past, not in any way. It's ever-present. And you, would, you know this if you've read Brideshead Revisited, uh, not seen any of the films made of it. I have yet to be impressed. But the um, Brideshead Revisited is about the aristocracy in the early 20th century, in early 20th century England. Uh, it's about a Roman Catholic family in England, which is fascinating in and of itself. They weren't Anglican. I mean, come on. And, uh, and uh, that was very funny. And, uh, and the, the, the book uh, focuses on several characters. One of them is Julia Flight, who is the heiress, the pride and joy of this aristocratic Catholic family. 
who abandons with vigor the Catholicism of her youth in order to become a mistress of a combative atheist. And at that point, she, uh, with great relish and expression, rejects the Catholicism of her upbringing. At one point, she is confronted by a relative saying, Julia, you are now living in sin. And Julia responds with great anger, yes, living in sin, with sin, by sin, for sin, every hour, every day, waking up with sin in the morning, seeing the curtains drawn on sin at night, adoring at the altar of sin. We have here a a syncretism between uh, sensuality and a form of religion. Uh, Very sadly, Kate Blanchett, who is, by the way, the most fantastic actress in the world, parroted a similar sentiment in a recent statement that she made. I will give you the PG version because this is, after all, church. She says, my moral compass is my libido. I mean, it's a perspective. Parenthetically, whenever anybody says to you that uh, secularism clears the deck of, of deities, do not believe it for a second. Secularism is never functionally secular. It will always create objects of worship, whether it's nature, the state, or sensuality itself. It will deify something. Uh, And so uh, that's the second mirror that reflects perversion. The third mirror reflects the muzzling of conscience. The muzzling of conscience. Verse 9. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as cedars and strong as oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. This is unique in the judgment oracles. God is now telling them all of the things that he's done for them, which he hasn't done for the other nations. He says, I led you out of Egypt. I led you through the wilderness. And when your land was taken over by orcs, remember the Amorites are just orcs, really, very, very frightening people, I casted them out before you. I gave this land to you. And then when things went awry and you went astray, I sent you the voice of conscience in the form of prophets, and in the form of Nazarites. Now, prophets are people that bring the word of God as a corrective measure to get people back on the right course. And a Nazarite, don't worry about it, Nazarites are essentially Franciscan Baptists because they're part of a religious order which is fairly rigoristic and serious. Uh, They are called to an even higher standard than Torah. And they're Baptists because they're not allowed to drink. No wine for them. So the Nazarites, God says, this is what you did for them. You gave them wine. Why did you give them wine? You gave them wine to deconsecrate them, to make the sign of their own holiness among you null and void. Moreover, you told the prophets to shut up and not do their job. A prophet is given one job and one only, to speak, and you told them not to speak. You've taken away their voice. You have muzzled up the song of concern You have silenced the voice of conscience. Now, we do this all the time. Maybe somebody in this room, maybe, maybe one or two people, have had a relationship, a romantic entanglement, that wasn't altogether healthy. 
And you were warned by lots of people, hey, bad idea, bad idea. If there is a good idea folder and a bad idea folder, this goes in the bad idea folder. This is all bad, all bad. You're going to suffer more than you know. You're going to wake up with nightmares or a disease, and it's just going to be terrible. Please get out now, get out now, get out now. And you don't do it. And you know they're right. Many of us have been there, either in relationships or in some other area of life, where we have muzzled the voice of conscience. This is what Amos is focusing on throughout his book. He uh, reflects the unassailable light of truth to Israel, revealing their chief sins, injustice, perversion, and muzzling of conscience. Now, how does this text uh, relate to us? Well, last week, we talked about the fact that repentance begins with feeling a burden, a burden for the, for the, the cruel nature of sin in the world and of God's sure and certain judgment on that sin. If we understand that rightly, it will create a burdened heart. This week, the burden is increased. It's increased because uh, it becomes invasive and personal. It's not just about them out there. It's about me, and it's about you, and it's about our families. It's about our schools. It's about our cities. Our, it's about our friendships. It's about our county. It's about us. And we can, uh, friends, tell a great deal about our own Christian development by examining how we react when being confronted with the Hall of Mirrors. Whether that truth in the Hall of Mirrors springs directly from Scripture or arrives downstream in the words of a friend, a spouse, a child, or even an enemy. We can either, when it comes to the mirror, avoid or look We can avoid the hall of mirrors, avoid a risky glance at the imperfections and blemishes of our own nature. There are many ways to dodge. I have tried most of them. Maybe you have too. You could begin to obsess over the faults of your enemies or even the imperfections of your allies. If we look around, I'm sure we can find people that are stingier, more ill-tempered, or lustier than ourselves. Or we could focus on the problems in the broader culture. I mean, that's an easy target. Or we could just get stoned, forget it all. Or we could wait until others repent. Aren't you waiting for everybody else in your world to repent? I know I am. Don't you want your mother to repent, your father to repent, your children to see the light? Don't you want your in-laws to repent? Uh, Don't you want the government to repent? I'm still waiting. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting. And when they repent and they apologize, then I'll reconsider my situation. Many ways to avoid the mirror. But avoiding a hall of mirrors will bring no resolution to your life. You'll actually be unhappy. You'll be terribly unhappy if you don't look. Here's the thing, too, about ignoring truth. The moral architecture of the universe remains whether you believe in it or not. It's better just to cope with it and accept it as it is because reality is an ambassador for God. Um, So that's the avoiding option. The other option involves risk too, though. It's called looking, taking a risky glance into God's moral will made known in Old and New Testaments. It's risky because it permits Scripture, if I can put it this way, permits Scripture to hurt our feelings. Sometimes Scripture's job is to, is to blast before it builds. And that sort of explosion can hurt. Though the long game 
uh, is ultimately a good one. Amos knew that, that the, the hall of mirrors is not an abattoir. It's a corridor to strength, health, and vitality. It is the pathway to a new genesis for every person in this church. Looking at ourselves in light of truth. St. James says this about it. St. James says that when we look into the mirror of God's truth, we are looking into the law of liberty. It's, it's a Christian goal of mine. I hope it is a, a goal of yours too. Uh, to see the House of Mirrors as the corridor to happiness, um, it's a goal to, uh, for me to be willing to own my failures, to confess error, to receive a rebuke, to receive a holy rebuke and not immediately get defensive. By the way, this is the secret to leadership. All of those books written about leadership, I mean, some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are a bit of both. But there is a secret to leadership that I have um, I've yet to see uh, be improved upon, and the secret is this. It is not putting on a game face, and it is not faking it till you make it. Every time you hear that phrase, by the way, run away. Uh, what is the secret? Falling on your sword. Owning your mistakes right away. It doesn't lead to people believing that you're less than you are. It actually helps people to realize that you're human too, and that you're teachable. And so, uh, all I can tell you is, fall on your sword more frequently. It's the secret to just being a human and the secret to leadership. There was a woman who discovered that the Hall of Mirrors led to a happiness, settledness, and strength. Her name? Julia Flight same character from Brideshead Revisited. Julia Flight, when she was older, was still plucky and strong, but she lost a bit of her rage and certainly lost her contempt for God, and she was seen praying. Someone asked her about it, and she explained it this way. You know, I've always been bad. Probably I shall be bad again but I cannot escape his mercy. However bad I am, I trust that he shall not despair of me in the end. We do not walk through the hall of mirrors in chilly isolation. There is a warm and warming hand on our shoulder. We never take a single step without the companion and friend of sinners who never ever gives up on us, not for a single second. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.